Welcome back to the Megawatt Hour, a podcast box set series brought to you by Energy Voice in paid partnership with BDO. In this series, we're examining how energy storage technologies are reshaping, reinforcing, and recharging energy markets in the UK and further afield. I'm Andrew Dykes, content editor at Energy Voice, where we are leading the global energy conversation. This is our first episode of 2023, and we're starting off strong by diving into arguably the most important aspect of how we are going to use and deploy energy storage. That's the network that underpins much of our electricity and energy systems in the UK, that's the national grid. The UK already has an ambition to run a zero carbon capable grid by 2025 and to reach 100% clean energy all the time by 2035. To get there, however, the grid faces challenges on multiple fronts, whether that's building infrastructure to connect gigawatts of new renewables capacity, grappling with how to ensure electricity can be sent to where it's consumed, and increasingly, as we've already discussed, how to incorporate new ways of managing flexibility and demand on the grid as well as generation. Energy storage is undoubtedly going to play a major role in solving some of those challenges, and we're hopefully going to dig into some of the solutions over the course of our episode. I'm delighted once again to welcome back my co-host, David Bevan, a corporate finance partner at BDO. We're also joined today by Barney Wharton, the Director of Future Electricity Systems at Tradebody Renewable UK. Barney leads the organization's thinking and strategy on the future of the electricity system, with a role that verges into flexibility markets, energy storage, the roles of EVs, and the future of hydrogen all of which we might get to touch on today. Um, so thanks again to you both for joining me. So we've talked a lot about projects. Uh, we've talked about access to markets. Uh, we've talked a little bit about funding and regulation. Um, David, you were really keen that in this episode we talk about some of the bigger picture stuff that's going to tie all this together. Absolutely, Andrew, absolutely. Um, and as you said um, in the intro, in many ways this is the, the kind of most important episode because this is really all about the the grid's perspective on the service it's providing and, and how storage in all its different forms fits into that. You know, as you say, we've, we've talked about um, the various different markets and revenue streams that um, different types of storage can access. But we haven't really talked about the basics of, you know, how, how we all get our electricity, how the generators and the, the users are all, all paired and matched together. So I thought we'd start by just exploring some of those basics around, you know, what is the grid? How, how does it work in the UK? What are the main sort of components of it, and sort of who who is it? You know, who is the grid? What, who owns the grid, and um, what other key stakeholders are there in this process? This amazing, magical electrons process that we all benefit from. So, Barney, I suppose the first question then on this sort of back to basics part is is really how does the grid work, and who owns it? What is it? What is the grid? It's a, a big question. I, I think the probably the, the place to start is that you know we, we talk about the grid as if it's this kind of sort of single homogenous thing and and it's a lot more complicated than that i think the point to start is um there are really two aspects to it the first is you know the physical infrastructure so the cables and the wires that we see traveling around the country you know this sort of the big 400 kv um, pylons uh you know to drive across the country and then the, the smaller cables that that take the power to our homes um, and that's the, the the big level, the transmission system, and then the distribution system uh, close to, to the homes and businesses. So there's the physical infrastructure. And then the other side of it is the, the system operator. And you know, the system operator is responsible for deciding how the power f- should flow around the physical infrastructure. And those are two very separate bodies. Confusingly, they're both called National Grid. You have National Grid TO, which is the, the transmission owner who own the wires, and then National Grid ESO, who are the system operator. 
And, and they're going through a process of, of being split up at the moment. So in a few years, we will no longer have National Grid. ESO will have the future system operator, which would make the conversation about the grid uh, a bit clearer. But uh, in essence, it's the, the, the physical cables and wires and then the kind of the way that the, the electrons are managed around those as two separate parts of the grid as a whole. Okay, and is, and is it, that's really helpful. And is it right to think of, as I usually do, um, the, the ultimate customer um, of battery storage, for example, or storage in general, is the grid in whatever form it takes because they are the um, people or the systems that, that need storage capability. Is that the right way of thinking about it? I mean, I, I, I guess I would say that ultimately the customer is, is you and me as, as consumers of electricity wanting to keep you know, the lights on. And when you sort of come home from work, uh, you know, flick on the switch, turn on you know, your oven, it, it's there and working. So it, it's you and me that are kind of the ultimate customers, but it is the ESO that is responsible for making sure that that, that happens. You know, they're there, I think, as um, one of the guests on your previous podcast was saying, you know, it, it's you know, their primary job is to, is to keep the lights on and make sure that system works. So you know, yes, they, the grid, the ESO is the customer, but very much on our behalf as consumers. Okay, and how, um, in doing its job, the grid, how or, or the two components of the grid, what determines what their strategy is other than um, their, well, I guess, obligation to provide this service to customers? I mean, perhaps there's a, there are other stakeholders involved here beyond just the um, the grid and the, and the customer. There are you know, government agencies, et cetera, that are involved. How how do they determine what the grid does or can and can't do? So the the first point is you have Ofgem. So that's the uh, Office of Gas and uh, Electricity Markets. Uh, they are the, the economic regulator um, and they regulate everything to do with, with the, the energy system. So uh, electricity and gas, but the retail side as well as the, sort of the generation and supply side. Um, and they basically control um, how much money the various elements of the grid can spend on on new networks or new services, and they decide what the rules are or approve suggestions to, to how the rules should, ch- should change. So Ofgem are a really critical part of, of the picture because they really kind of control and govern the rules of the system. And then they, they take some direction from the government. So the government has set a net zero target for 2050, um, when we need to decarbonize our entire economy and, and the electricity sector is going to be the first part of that to really get there. Um, uh, and it's the government that are kind of setting targets for uh, decarbonization of the power system. So, you know, offshore wind, we have a, a 50 gigawatt target by 2030, uh, as well as ambitions and strategies that will put in place the, the markets that will drive it, lots of investment in in lots of the, the technologies that we need. So it, it is actually a really complicated picture lots of different players and, and trying to navigate that either as a uh, sort of a regulatory and policy sort of person like me or as a, as a business if you're in the storage side it can be quite challenging sure no. i think we so I, th- I think i think we may come on to that a little bit later on in terms of signaling particularly for new, new types of storage and and wanting to encourage that kind of investment um we'll, we'll touch perhaps later on how <clears throat> how the grid and and um off gem and others go about that planning process you mentioned there kind of net zero as as suppose the ultimate target for the energy system that's 2050 we've also got these uh kind of middle targets of 2035 and 2025 which kind of mainly reflect on the electricity system could you talk a little bit more about them yeah so it's a net zero economy by 2050 um and but, but kind of an earlier target as you say is for the electricity system alone 
to be uh, zero carbon by 2035. Um, since uh, the beginning of 2022, uh, with what's happened in Ukraine, uh, there's been an important caveat to that, which is net zero by 2035, subject to security of supply, um, because that is obviously you know, forefront of, of government thinking right now. But but the, the target there is to essentially remove all the fossil generation uh, or unabated fossil generation of the system. So at the moment, we we currently get uh, on any given day between 20 and 60% of our power from from gas, essentially. Uh, that will have to come off the system unless the, the carbon from that those power plants can be captured uh, through CCUS. And that's going to be replaced primarily by offshore wind, uh, onshore wind and, and solar. So a huge change that we're going to see between now and 2035. So that's, that's the long-term target. Um, but on that road, we have a target for 2025, which is to be able to run the system for short periods without any fossil fuel uh, generation on the system. And that's only a couple of years away now. Uh, and that's going to be a really important staging post. Um, you know, if we can manage even five, 10 minutes when there's no fossil fuel on the generation, that's going to be really impressive. And it's going to be difficult because there are certain services and um, features of fossil fuel generation that are really important to maintaining the stability of the grid. And that they can't always be provided by renewables, uh, but storage and different types of storage can either mitigate those challenges or replace the role of, of fossil fuels on the system. That probably takes us into storage's role and, and where we're where we're going with that. You know, how does the grid balance all those different competing needs for supply and demand at the moment? And then and kind of what is the wedge that storage is, is coming into or the gap I suppose the storage is coming in to fill to get us to those kind of key twenty twenty five and twenty thirty five targets? So I mean, essentially the way it works right now is you have lots of generators on the system and then you have the, the suppliers. So the people that are you know, sending the power or well, sort of negotiating the power to come to our, our homes and, and businesses. And you know, for, even from a year out from today, those, those companies were negotiating and trying to work out how much power they need at any given moment a year ahead and buying and selling that in the energy market. Um, so it's really driven by... Um, the suppliers and generators, what we call doing self-dispatch, so working out what they need to generate when. Um, obviously, a year out, quite difficult to know what the wind is going to be doing. But as we get closer and closer and closer to, to real time, uh, those predictions and forecasts can get more accurate um, until we get to literally 30 minutes before what we call gate closure, so every half-hour block, um, at which point you know, everyone says, this is what we're going to provide. Um, and then it's National Grid ESO, the system operator's job, to look at all of those commitments and actually see what's happening on the system and then step in and, and do any of, the, any of the final tweaking that the system needs to keep things balanced. And that's really those, that short-term, you know, a day and intraday market is where storage comes into its own because there's still a lot of uncertainty, particularly around weather impacts that, that will need to be balanced and, and storage can play a really important role at that point. And what tools does the grid have in, in relation to that tweaking you referred to that, in that final half an hour? What, what can it do? And what's it, what is, presumably there's like a, a ranking of things, oh, I'll do this first because that's cheaper or easier, I'll do this next. How, how, does, how does that work? So they've got to balance lots of different aspects to it and the, the most critical one is making sure that the volume of supply and the volume of demand are the same. Um, and so they run what they call the balancing mechanism. Uh, and that's essentially um, looking at what the difference is or what the forecast difference in any given moment is between supply and demand. And they can go to the market and say, actually, you know, so-and-so, you know, there's too much power. We want people to turn down or there's not enough we want people to turn up. And they run a market. 
uh, to do that. So people can bid into that balancing market. And and obviously the, the cheapest generation um, there is that the national grid will then buy on consumers' behalf to balance the system. So that, that's the most sort of critical tool that, that we have. And um, you know, storage is playing an increasing role in that. So I think that the, the second point, though, is when it gets much more complicated, is as well as uh, that balancing market, sort of keeping supply and demand in uh, balance, um, the system stability. So got, they've got to keep the, the frequency of the grid at 50 hertz. Um, for historic reasons, it's 50 hertz. In the US, it's 60 hertz. I, I don't really understand why. Um, but depending on what's going on in the system, that, that frequency can fluctuate around quite a lot. And it can happen quite quickly. Uh, as well, and if it goes outside of a really tight band, that that can cause problems with with machinery, can cause problems with computers, and, and all sorts of things. And the great thing about batteries is, in particular, that they can respond really, really quickly to changes in frequency. And National Grid run all sorts of different markets to manage the frequency, and it's batteries that are really, really operating efficiently in that market, really keeping the the whole system. Uh, not just in balance, but also very stable. And that's a, a critical role they're going to be playing going forward. It's, it's probably worth saying as well that we, we've obviously talked a lot about batteries and, and other forms of storage in the past, but you know we already have storage capacity uh, previous to batteries on the grid. We have things like pumped hydro. You know, this is kind of not a new concept, but it is one which is going to become an increasing part of, of the grid and of the market, obviously, going forward. Yeah. Um, as we as we build more renewables and you know, we're moving from you know a decade ago, wind was, I think, 5% of generation. Um, last year, it was 25. And, and by the end of this decade, it's going to be uh, 60% of generation. So as we move to more and more renew- renewables on the system, we need to be able to kind of capture and balance uh, much more efficiently, either both you know, to capture the excess wind and generation and, and balance it when it's not there. And, and storage is going to play a much, much more important role in that. And it, you know, we've had pumped hydro on the system for, I think, 100 years now. But um, yeah, it, it's really coming to the fore uh, as we move towards a higher renewable system. Um, just going back a, a step to the 2025 commitment that the grid's made, um, you mentioned that um, you know, we're getting closer and closer to being... To, to having, for short periods at least, a, a fully uh, carbon-free um, system. What, um, or ha- how close are we? Have we ever been at that point? And what will they, what will the grid consider sort of success? Will it be sort of doing it every one, once a week or once a month or just once in in that period? What's the? I, I think the success will be yeah, doing it if they can do it once in twenty twenty five. I think that'll you know that definitely a tick against the KPIs. And I, I think they, you know, you kind of read it. I think it'll be, it'll be a, a, a relatively benign but windy kind of low demand autumn afternoon, kind of second week in October, that sort of time. Headlines guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not putting money on that. So, yeah, so that that'll be. And once it can be done once, it does work, and we can do it. Then, then I think it'll happen more frequently. We've got really close. Um, you may have seen that in the run-up to the new year and just after the new year, we broke a number of wind generation records. Um, so wind, I think, you know, 21 gigawatts uh, of generation. I think that was about, on its own, about 60% of demand. But then when you build in the onshore wind side of things, sorry, not the onshore, the solar, and, and also nuclear is obviously zero carbon as well. Yeah, you know, we're pushing 80%. Uh, and there have been times when uh, the available generation has actually been over 90% of, of demand. 
But because of, you know, we need to maintain system stability and there are still some challenges around how you technically do that in a high renewable system, uh, National Grid's actually had to turn down some of the wind and then turn up some gas to maintain system stability. So we, we are getting closer and closer and closer, but it's just fine tuning and understanding exactly how the system works in those high renewable situations um, that, that we need to, to get to grips with. But we are getting closer and closer kind of every every year. So that's really interesting. So are we saying that actually as, you, as we get closer and closer to that target, the sort of mar- the marginal challenge or the marginal difficulty of getting to that 100% um, increases because of what you said, system stability. Are there, are there other things that um, you know, have to be considered when you, I suppose, you know, essentially switch off all, uh, all fossil generation? Does that have other impacts that uh, kind of cause step challenges that maybe haven't even been sort of experienced yet because we're still only at 85 or whatever percent? So the, the key, key thing is, as you say, the um, sort of system stability. So in a fossil fuel you know, thermal plant, you've got very large you know, spinning bits of kit. And that spinning gives the system inertia. It keeps, it keeps everything else kind of, you know, all the plates spinning, as it were. And that's a really crucial service. So taking that off the system um, makes the whole system a lot less stable and, and, and could be uh, more difficult to balance. So you know, taking it all away is going to be a, a big step. So that's the critical thing. Then the, the, There are then other kind of minor less critical i suppose um challenges you know such as it, you know a battery you can turn on turn off in in milliseconds um a gas turbine actually takes you know minutes to kind of get going and that's once it's already warm uh, and we've seen in in recent weeks when it's been low wind you know, national grid warning coal power plants that they need to warm up you know days in advance of their, their use because it takes that long to get things going so if you start taking off these sorts of thermal plant off the system, you can't bring them on straight away. So it needs to be it needs to be balanced. You need to understand kind of what's going to be happening in the next sort of minutes and hours and even days ahead to know exactly how much you can take off the system as national grid safely because you can't bring it on instantaneously if you do need it. Yeah, okay. And, and I guess so in a carbon-free grid, nuclear would be considered carbon-free, I guess. So that And that provides the kind of inertia um, that you talked about. So are there any... I know that the UK's sind kind of nuclear um, capacity has been sort of reducing, if anything, over in recent years. Is, are there any steps where um, additional nuclear capacity could come online to make this job a little bit easier in the next three years? Uh, I, I don't think you'd bring nuclear online in the next three years. Um, as we, we're well aware Hinkley Point has taken a little bit longer than that to, to be built. Um, but I think in the long term, you know, I think everyone recognises that there will be some sort of role for nuclear. But you do need to bring on this sort of these inertia services to keep the system stable. And actually, there's some really interesting storage technologies um, that can do that. So pumped hydro is it provides inertia in itself because that is a, a spinning kind of spinning mass at the end of the turbine. Um, but then you've got technologies coming forward like liquid air storage, and that that provides inertia because again, it, it's a prop, proper uh, in inverted commas um, turbine. The, that it can be synchronized with the grid and provide those sorts of services. So yeah, as more different technologies for storage come on board, um, we, we can replace the role of, of, sort of thermal plant with these other technologies. Uh, and that's kind of a really exciting aspect to all of this. We are going to take a quick break there and we will be right back.
To uncover the full story behind the numbers, you need analytics, but more than that, you want people who will harness their experience, intelligence and insight to interpret the raw data. BDO's UK Renewables practice works with investors and developers across a wide range of renewable technologies and from large corporates and funds to small community energy projects. The passion of our people and the breadth of our expertise enables us to understand the challenges faced by our renewables clients. We are partner-led, pragmatic and flexible in our approach, which is essential in such a dynamic and evolving sector. Our model audit team is ranked number one by both transaction volume and value on IJ Global, and we are proud of our track record in supporting many of the UK's listed renewables infrastructure funds, both with their fundraisings and their increasingly global M&A activity. Find out how we can help your company to succeed at bdo.co.uk and realise your business potential. BDO, more than a numbers machine. So we've talked a lot about the fact that we're going to need storage. The next question, I suppose, from my point of view, is, is how much and how do we decide how much and, and where to build it? I've heard a couple of metrics being thrown around where people say things like, oh, for every one megawatt of renewables, you need three megawatts of fossil or five megawatts of storage or all these sort of rules of thumb, which you know, I'm, I'm slightly sceptical of myself, but is there a good metric that you can help us with, Barney? Uh, short answer, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's always helpful. You, you do see kind of those things those things thrown around and, and I, I struggle to understand how kind of if you take you know, a, a megawatt of variable renewables and take it off the system, you need to replace that with three. Surely you just need the one megawatt to replace it. So, uh, but you know, there are lots of very clever people who do lots of modeling uh, of the, the future system and um, you know, look into this really hard. You know, you've got to make lots of assumptions about what the future system looks like, the, the volume of, of wind generation and solar generation you have in the system. What do you think nuclear is going to do? Uh, and all these sorts of things. So it, it isn't it isn't an easy answer, but you can look across the kind of the broad range of of all of those models and and the the, the future energy scenarios that National Grid ESO produces, and you get to a kind of number in the sort of fifty the fifty to eighty gigawatts capacity of storage you know, across the board, and that includes batteries, that includes pumped hydro. But I, I think so. Twenty twenty gigawatts of battery capacity. It kind of seems to be where the consensus is uh, for twenty thirty five, um, which is is easily achievable if you look at the pipeline that we have today. And then as you you you, know, you build out the system more and and you get more and more electrification, that obviously will grow with the system. So it, it's a question of you know what do you think the system's going to look like? What are the other factors that are going to be? You know how many EVs are going to be in the system? And EVs are of course a, a form of storage as well when we get vehicle to grid services. So you know there, there, there are lots and lots of assumptions that that have to go into to this to kind of get to the point where you you can say how much you think we're going to need. And I, I think the answer is actually going to be rather than building a target, though we can kind of have a pretty good indication. It's going to be making sure that the market's there and the signals are there to bring forward the investment in storage. So it's there when we need it. Uh, and lots of work is going on that at the moment. Do you think those signals are, I mean, from my perspective, we, we see um, lots of transactional work in, in utility-scale battery storage and the, and the sizes of these um, projects are getting bigger and bigger and the volume seems to be going up. So there doesn't seem to be any... Um, so fear in my mind that there's going to be a lot more battery storage. Is there a, a role for other types of technology? And is there a, 
Um, do you think there should be more um, signaling or incentivization for, for, for technologies such as you know, larger scale, longer duration storage like, like pumped hydro? Um, should there be more of that? Yeah, definitely. I, I think the short duration storage, so batteries, which are really playing in these sort of inertia and frequency response markets that we've already talked about, um, that's doing really well. And you're seeing the, the sort of the volume in the pipeline grow and grow and grow and projects coming forward and, and the batteries are getting bigger. Uh, and they're doing more and more exciting things. So that shorter duration battery market is doing really well. But it is that long duration stuff. So when you start moving away from just managing sort of day, intraday markets, so minute to minute, hour to hour, through to day to day, week to week, and even into seasonal storage, that's where we don't have the sorts of markets we need right now um, in, in existence. And you know, there hasn't been a really large-scale storage project built for a very long time. Uh, there are there are projects in the offing. There, there's a couple of uh, pumped hydro storages uh, projects being developed. Um, you know, there's a role for hydrogen as well, uh, as well as things like compressed air and and liquidized air storage. But yeah, without a really clear market, we're not. They're not going to come forward. So that's interesting. I, I know for some of those uh, major pump projects, they've kind of said as much, and that they need some kind of market mechanism. I mean, what what routes could um, a future systems operator or the ESO as it is now take to um, incentivize those and to kind of provide that platform that they can you know build that out? So th- this is one of the situations where actually it's probably more the government. So now we've got the the, the Department for energy security and net zero, which we haven't decided how to pronounce yet. They're going to be the ones that are deciding what these markets look like and then sort of pass that on to the national grid uh, and Ofgem to, to deliver. But the, the the leading idea, I think, that everyone kind of, not everyone, but you know, there, there's broad consensus on is having a, a, a cap and floor mechanism, which is what we have for the interconnectors as well. And essentially all that says is if you're a storage project, um, you know, you're, you're going to it's a very variable volatile market but you won't get less than a certain amount of revenue but we're going to cap it as well so you don't get all the upside risk so you'll be able to sort of play and operate in a a volatile market which will drive the behaviors you need for storage uh, but at the same time minimize that risk to both the investors and consumers so that that's where i think we're heading but we're, we're still waiting for government to sort of come out and confirm what that's going to look like hopefully in 2023 that'll happen but it's fair to say that the market mechanisms kind of as they stand are probably not enough to begin to work into this you know long duration or more strategic storage angle as it is uh as things currently stand yeah i think there's um you know the, these projects are uh very capital intensive you know you have to spend lots and lots of money to, to build a very large lake on top of a mountain um and then you're reliant on on quite volatile markets which uh you know as investors is probably a bit of a a bit of a leap to make at the moment. I guess where ultimately there's a sort of a sort of simple solution where if you if you can't encourage the right level of investment in the right types of storage or you just can't model it, the scenarios are too complicated. I guess one that the the end solution is is sort of demand management and then ultimately you know i mean in some countries there are planned outages where consumers um, get a different kind of service. You know they have to make their own planning around um, their demand. Um, do you think the modelling that we talked about earlier, um, the scenario planning, do you think that ever is ever considered as a, as a realistic? I mean, I remember power outages were quite common in the sort of seventies and eighties. It was, you know, it was quite quite fun and amusing. And I know there, are, you know, there are some users that for which it's not fun and it's serious. But um, you could you could envisage a situation where at certain exceptional times 
um, power outages become a, just a, 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 a reality of a renewable grid system? Do you, is that a real realistic scenario to model? I hope not. Uh, and I don't think it needs to be. Um, you know, we've seen this winter the new uh, demand flexibility service that the National Grid has introduced, um, <clears throat> which is basically, it's been you know, a demand response service. So I think the, the customers of some, um, some suppliers you know, get a text message and email saying, you know, if you turn down uh, your usage between you know, six and seven o'clock tonight, we'll pay you I think it's sort of up to six pounds uh, a kilowatt hour, which is a, a vast amount of money when you think we're currently paying 50p for it. So um, that demand response uh, ha- has been proven. And I think Octopus have said that they uh, they essentially got what is it effectively a, a power plant of 100 megawatts just from that service that they can provide a service of, of, of flexibility on the demand side to National Grid, which is quite a, an impressive thing. That's just one supplier. And then if you, if you scale that up across the market, you could actually add, add quite a lot of flexibility to, to manage these, syst- these times when the system is quite tight, if there's low wind or, or whatever. So that sort of demand flexibility side of things is starting to be much more a feature of, of models. And when the government uh, talks about system flexibility, you know, it's not just sort of batteries providing that flexibility or, or generators providing flexibility, but also the consumers providing flexibility as well. So you, you can manage both the supply and demand, um, you know, much more dynamically, uh, which, yeah, will will avoid blackouts. And I, I don't think anyone intends there, there to be times when we are managing uh, total blackouts on the system. Well, that's good news. <laughs> you you mentioned the the complexity of the system as a whole. I wondered whether you know is it a Rolling Stone? Is it as as we gather more data on this and more patterns and more flexibility and how all these things interact? You know, do we have better models going forward or are we still kind of at the mercy of weather you know to a certain degree where we are going to need to be able to make these you know 30 minute calls and it, and it might not get more predictable than that weather forecasting is getting much better so i i think when you know wind started becoming a a significant part of the system you know, 10 years ago you were really talking kind of a, as a generator six hours you have a pretty good idea and it's still you still do get gusts so you still get a lot of variability within it but now you know with weather forecasting being what it's being and and, and machine learning uh you know 48 hours i think ahead of time uh wind generators can can probably predict within 95 percent or five percent of, of what they actually do what they're going to be doing so so that's getting much better and um, and then if you if you do start combining that sort of generation with you know on-site co-located storage you can actually get uh wind farms pretty much being able to say we're going to generate x you know a couple of days in advance which makes it much easier for for national grid and others to balance the system so we, we are heading in that direction um and then on the on the flip side you know we're getting you know, internet of things you're getting kind of ai talking about uh, being able to manage things like you know tesco's for example um it has a huge number of fridges across the country. Um, now, if you can use AI to kind of turn those fridges up and down, um, that's a huge amount of demand that you can also vary and then you replicate that across all the other supermarkets. It, it can have a huge impact. So the, the sort of AI data um, and forecasting is getting much better. The flip side of that is um, on-demand TV. You know, no one now watches EastEnders at exactly the same time. So the kind of the EastEnders pickup when everyone would get up and, and put on the um the cup of tea after the, the the drum beats that doesn't happen so much more so we're getting some more complexity at the other end so it's it's a really interesting time but kind of data ai 
uh, machine learning is going to be an absolutely critical part of, of the system going if, forward. If you had to put your finger on what the biggest single uncertainty, what would you say that was? Um, it sounds like weather forecasting in the short to medium term is pretty good. Where do you think the biggest uncertainty lies? Right now, um, the the big uncertainty, the big question is what you, what do you do about heat? Uh, you know, obviously, most people um, heating their home uh, with gas um, and their boiler, and or if you're off the gas grid, you're using um, probably oil. If people start moving to electrification, so moving to heat pumps, which are getting cheaper all the time, that then puts a lot more demand on the electricity grid. And the, the, the real challenge with that is that you know lots of people you know come home from work if you're if you're not working from home these days, um, and you want heating to be on, and it has to be nice and cozy when you get home at five o'clock. Um, the, the the peak heat demand can, on a day to day basis is I, I think about four times in the winter what the electricity demand is on a, and, and that's going up and down every day. Managing that is going to be an incredible challenge. Um, now that that some people say actually we can use hydrogen and, and that's an option for for some homes, but it's going to be again about how do you uh, manage your home you know, do you need your heating on exactly when you come home do you have it on earlier in the day and how do all these things aggregate so that's the real that's the really big challenge because if everyone moves to heat pump and then there's no sort of smart way of managing it and plugs in their ev at the same time you know, you're going to see this sort of six o'clock spike uh which we won't be able to manage so that's the biggest question is how do all these things come together in a very smart way um with the necessary sort of system upgrades as well to, to the networks and the wires uh, in, in a way that we can keep everything rolling. And that's, I think, that kind of how big is that peak going to be of heat demand is, is the biggest uncertainty and probably the biggest challenge we have. I'm, I'm going to get on a, on a soapbox here. And I think you see this in a lot of different sectors, which is to apply the, the patterns of right now or you know the last few decades or whatever to how things will look in the future. And I see it with EVs, especially things like range anxiety, this idea that you'll suddenly you know, an unplanned trip and you won't be able to use your car because it's too long or whatever. Whereas the the fact is that most people will charge up an electric vehicle overnight. It will be ready, you know, in 95% of cases when they need it. I think to go back to your point about blackouts, David, a lot of this is the same for things like heat and, and power. You know, we're, our patterns will be different and the way in which we use all these things will be different kind of by necessity. And, and people are kind of, you know, like moving the goalposts a little bit to assume that everything will be the same in 2050 and we won't have had to adapt in any way but we'll still have the service as we we expect it, and be zero carbon. Yeah, lots of I agree. Lots of lots of lots of behavioural change needed. I think I totally agree with that. There will be, and, and we just did, you know, this then ties into all the energy efficiency side of things. You know, I've I've not got double glazing uh, on the windows behind me, and it's freezing in here right now. Um, and that's probably nothing for for energy security. You're going to end up in the in the Daily Mail for that, I'm afraid, Barney. I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, I should probably. Oh, I've got a jumper on. I put a scarf on as well. <laughs> You, you mentioned their um, co-location, which I think is interesting. It takes us on to another thing that we wanted to talk about, which is infrastructure and, and capital costs. So there's, there's a point at which you know storage is kind of, to a certain extent, replacing other kinds of infrastructure or avoiding the need for it at this point. I think with, with batteries, you're able to kind of store at certain sites and dispatch around local areas and things like that, rather than, say, building much larger wires to more centers of demand, to paraphrase loosely. You know, is that... Uh, an ongoing factor in the calculations of how much we're going to need of, of again, the different ways in which storage can replace those things. Yeah, so storage will it'll do a, a few different things. One is is you know, around balancing, you know, the kind of the, the demand and, and supplies as we talked about. But the other thing is, is you know replacing wires um, because if you if everyone is is you know, wanting to you know 
charge the OV at the same time. Uh, again, not that I think they will, but say, you know, that that wire in the street is going to get quite hot. So if you can have um, storage either at home or also on the end of the street or, or kind of other places in the grid, um, you can manage how the, the power flows around the grid much more efficiently. And that will then avoid the need uh, to build more cables. So you, you can be using storage to, um, yeah, think about just how the power flows around the system much more efficiently. So it, it can be where it needs to be when it's needed, but doesn't actually have to travel across the whole system at the same time. Uh, and that, that will make things much, yeah, much more efficient. We've talked about infrastructure and a bit about modeling. The other thing is obviously uh, governance and, and policy and regulation. You know, are the current frameworks that we have enough to get us to where we need to be, Barney? So the challenge we have is that we, we need to reach net zero and we need to do that at least cost. And we've got from now until 2035 or 2050 to, to get there. So what we want to be doing really is sort of planning what that looks like and building out the grid in the best way possible between now and then. The difficulty we have is that you know, energy bills, you know, quite rightly right now, are at the forefront uh, of people's minds. What that's resulting in is a really strong focus on you know, how do we do everything in the lowest cost possible way. Um, and what that is, is basically is, is not spending any money on infrastructure, sweating the assets that we do have and not building for the future. And that means that, you know, we, we've been doing that for sort of 30 years or so. So that means actually at some point we're going to have to build a huge amount uh, more network to deliver all of this in one go. And when that hits, that's going to be really expensive. Um, and the reality is actually that's basically happening now. Uh, we're starting to see a need to build a lot more grid uh, that we haven't really been building for uh, 30 years. And yeah, it, it's going to have to happen very quickly, which is going to be a challenge in itself. Um, and it's going to end up being quite expensive if we don't do it right. I know we're already struggling with trying to connect some of the larger renewables projects that we were looking to bring online. So this is obviously, you know, it's not going anywhere as a problem. I think uh, this week there was a, a warning from a lot of renewables uh, groups about that. You know, does the same apply for again, energy storage and, and making enough connection space available over the next kind of 15 years. Yeah, absolutely. You know, if, if you want to connect any project to the networks now, uh, if, you, if you apply, you'll be given a date when you expect to be able to connect. And in some parts of the country, that date will be sometime in 2036, 2037, because uh, that's the earliest that National Grid is currently able to connect you in that area, which is crazy. So we, we need to resolve this. And and in, in a sense, that's an... A sign of actually how much investment and how much is coming forward because it's just the sheer number of projects and lots of these projects are storage projects uh, coming forward to the markets they see a real opportunity to to support the net zero transition um, but if we can't get them connected in in the next sort of you know few years then then obviously they're going to do it somewhere else so it's you know while it's a reflection of the success of the market it's also a huge challenge because we need to be able to connect these projects much much earlier and that's true of you know any any project uh, connecting to the network, whether it's a storage project or a new project or even, you know, a new nuclear power station. And is there enough, I guess, political will and, and awareness uh, to grapple with that issue and to get us to where we need to be? Um, we're, we're working on it. I, I think it's probably the <laughs> best thing. That's very diplomatic. Um, it, it is, I think, become much clearer, even in the past six months, uh, of what a, what a big problem this is. Uh, we've got very ambitious offshore wind targets, um, we need to build all this this storage as well, uh, and I think 
you know, politicians and, and policymakers in Ofgem are, are really starting to recognise this. So we have seen um, some developments in in the past six months. You know, proposals um, to accelerate onshore transmission from Ofgem. Um, you know, much more strategic designs of the network from national grid, but it's still you know not happening quick enough. So we need to continue to to put pressure on on the people making the decisions uh, to sort of bring forward the investment in the network. To, to connect these projects much more quickly. Barney, do you think there's anyone around the world, any other countries with a similar energy mix to the UK that are doing better in terms of storage than us and that have similar kinds of net zero decarbonisation sort of strategies and policies? Or actually, are we pretty good globally? I think we're, we're pretty good globally. Um, if you look at our generation mix, you know, we're, we're a world leader in, in offshore um and yeah i think 40 percent of our generation last year came from renewables so on that side of things we're, we're kind of a world leader and doing really well um there are other, are other parts of the world that are doing really well on storage you look at what's going on in california australia you know lots of battery storage coming forward there again both of those use lots of solar energy so there are there are other parts of the world that are that are also doing doing really well and we we can all learn lessons from each other the big challenge this actually creates though is that you know everyone's heading for net zero Everyone's introducing more renewables and more storage and therefore more network. And someone's got to build these cables and then install them. And we're all competing for uh, the space in the factories and the, the materials you need to make the cables. And that's actually going to be a real crunch. So if, if, again, coming back to this point that if you don't plan ahead, um, you, know, you can't rock up to a, a cable manufacturer and say, can you get me some cable next week? Because um, they well, we've got ten years of orders, so no, wait your turn. So that that's another reason why we need this kind of strategic approach to the whole system uh, to ensure that we can we can get the materials we need when we need them. The supply chain rears its head again <laughs> once more in the energy debate. Um, you mentioned there uh, we've talked about heat and we've talked a little bit about kind of capacity and, and constraint on the grid. Um, obviously, EV charging infrastructure is another thing, and transport you know increasingly electrified. Um, is enough being doing to connect those dots as well and, and linking up the goals of uh, zero carbon transport with how they get that power? So on the on the transmission level, so the, you know, the big wires we have around the country, I think National Grid say, you know, we, we've got plans in place that, that there won't be any problem getting power around the country. You know, we're not going to be you know, struggling to move power around. Um, there are certain hotspots, I think, at the distribution level you know, on sort of you know, streets and towns where it may be more difficult, but I think those networks are looking at it. The, the big challenge is, you know, how much power generation are we going to need in the long term? Because you know, you know, a million extra electric vehicles is quite a lot more power. And the, the, you know, going back to kind of how you model and design the system, that's quite a lot of variability there. So that's uh, an interesting debate about how much more generation will we need. And there's lots of modeling from the, the Climate Change Committee and, and National Grid looking at that. And the flip side of that is that these EVs, if you can get your vehicle to grid, um, you know, charging sort of said that you know, electric vehicles can be batteries in themselves and provide services to the grid. How much capacity can that offer as a service? And, and have, we get, have we got the frameworks in place to enable that? And we're only just starting to see the kind of the trials for vehicle to grid services sort of rolling out, I, I think, kind of this month, uh, which is really exciting. But it's going to be an absolutely crucial part of, of, of the system going forward. One thing to harken back to our last episode um, that Nicholas Beatty from Zenobi was talking about. I think uh, one of the, their original projects at a bus depot, they wanted to electrify their fleet, but the gr- suitable grid connection to be able to discharge enough power to fill up buses or fill up their sort of local storage at once was, was going to be years and you know millions of pounds that was not in their budget. And, and kind of Zenobi's 
think I suppose quite innovative really was to step in and provide that infrastructure as well. So do you see more of those kind of intermediate companies stepping in to provide solutions that can kind of benefit both parties? Yeah, absolutely. So you're seeing some really interesting projects coming forward where, you know, close to um, substations, you know, installing batteries to sort of draw power off, you know, particularly kind of along motorways uh, where lots of people may be charging. Um, and you know, everyone drawing power at the same time, you know, wouldn't be possible due to, to the, the capacity constraints in that example. But if you can have a battery alongside, you can share the burden between the battery and and the uh, the network. And then when you haven't got all the demand for the charging, you can you can charge up your battery as well. So I think those sorts of services uh, you're going to see, and even in the home actually. So you're seeing increasingly people having batteries and solar at home uh, and you know, EV chargers as well. So you, know, you can be charging your battery from your solar panel uh, during the day and drawing that in the evening when you need all your power. When in future, if, as we move to a more flexible system, power may be more expensive in the evening we've seen um, this winter. So um, I, I think that sort of those sorts of services to consumers, not just to national grid, uh, is going to be a huge part of the picture going forward. I agree. Huge opportunities for lots of people, actually. <clears throat> Energy in the home. And stay tuned for another episode on that later in the series as well. Um, that's probably a good place to think about drawing the discussion to close, but I did want to kind of pitch to both of you a, a question on the discussion so far, which is, are we on a positive trajectory for that key 100% electricity on the grid target? And within that, is storage being adequately recognized as one of the uh, tools in the toolbox to be able to get there uh, barney to you first we're definitely heading in the right direction i i don't think we should be uh naive about the challenges on the grid and, and building enough generation to get there but you know it's definitely achievable uh the short-term storage i think is doing brilliantly uh and that's you know definitely being recognized it's that long duration storage you know those longer periods of when when the wind doesn't blow that we need to really tackle and that's where i think this question about what's the market model there going to be absolutely critical on that actually i'm, I'm going to ask you another question which I, shouldn't be doing at the end but i was thinking about the the long-term strategy for sort of procurement for that and you were mentioned about kind of hedging and power prices a year ahead you know do you see a point where we're getting into a hedge for a certain amount of hydrogen a year in advance and produced and stored and it must be available you know at that time in the manner of a power market or do you see it much more like gas where it's kind of traded as a as a commodity i think we'll probably go from one to the other so in, a, in the very long term uh, you know we may get to that hydrogen commodity but in the short term i you know, short to medium term yeah i think we'll probably see sort of hydrogen being used much more sort of locationally and locally to, to deliver specific services so we'll, we'll be going through that transition over the next 30 years or so david from from what you've understood so far you know are we are we on that trajectory to 100 percent? and and should we be doing more look i think we are on the right trajectory i think um i agree with barney i think it's the longer term storage the bigger the higher capex projects that some of which are really interesting we had we had one on 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 the previous episode uh, really innovative ways of doing longer term storage i think that you know that's where the focus needs to be i don't think the short-term storage um you know we've said before on this series that you know, there's been an absolute explosion in uh, utility scale battery storage it's, it's been phenomenal uh, over such a short period of time so it's really encouraging um, but it's yeah it's the longer longer duration stuff that i think is the needs more work another challenge for another episode perhaps but i'm going to thank both of you once again for joining me david and to barney from renewable uk and to amber our producer thanks also to you for listening you can let us know your thoughts through our social media channels or by emailing outloud at energyvoice.com 
And every week, the Energy Voice team get together to highlight important stories from the world of energy in our regular podcast episodes. If you've not already, please do subscribe free to Energy Voice Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And listen out for more episodes of the Megawatt Hour coming your way very soon. I've been Andrew Dykes, and thanks very much for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter, and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.